Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This morning we have a psalm that's very, very helpful because this is one of the penitential psalms, and a penitential psalm is a psalm of confession of sin and request for forgiveness. And so if you've come here this morning very aware of your sins, knowing that your sins are many, this is a psalm for you. So let's hear the word of God as it's given to us in Psalm 25. We already heard it in song. I will read it to you. This is God's word, and it's eternally true. This is a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you, the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed. For I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Again, this is a psalm of David, and Scripture tells us about David that he was a man after God's own heart. And what a wonderful statement. And the central theme of this psalm is the sin of David. And he says it's, there are many, many sins. I love this psalm for one phrase in it, which is, remember not the sins of my youth, which is how it's, it's written in the King James Version. It begins, well, before it begins, this is an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is? An acrostic is where each successive verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if it were the if it were our alphabet, the first 
verse would begin with the letter A, the second verse with the letter B, and so forth, and it seems like it's a way that they were able to memorize things because they didn't have books, you know, that they could buy at the time. It begins, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. So there's nobody for David but God. God is who David lifts up his soul to. David is not looking to his kingship or his many wives and concubines, his wealth. He's not looking to alcohol or drugs. He's not counting his money. He's not fishing or hunting or playing with his children. These are, many of them, legitimate comforts. But David is looking to God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Then verse 2, O my God. So we get more personal here. To you, O Lord, O my God. So David is identifying himself with God. God. The God of the universe is David's God, and his prayer publicly is, this God is my God. Oh my God, in you I trust. So this is a confession of personal faith on David's part. And David does not have a false modesty that refuses to cling to his heavenly father. He doesn't say to himself and to God, O Lord, I am not worthy to be known by you, nor to ask you to listen to my prayers. Far be it from me to take any of your time, to waste any of your time. I am a mere nothing, and I'll try to make this real quick, okay? Now, why am I saying that today? Well, because that's the, that's the attitude of young people today. And it's, it's what's come to be labeled very rightly humble bragging. It's Uriah Heepish, if you've ever read Dickens. And it's disgusting. And the reason it's disgusting is it is not manly or womanly, for that matter, to approach people in conversation and tell them that you're not worth anything and that they should pay you no mind. Because the minute somebody says that to you, you know that they think they're really something and you better listen up and give them what they want. And that's the way people are today. They, they use this irony and this sort of pathetic, limp-wristed kind of, I'm nothing, but you better do what I want. And it's back and forth. It's sashaying. It's, it's, it's floating like a butterfly, as I say, without stinging like a bee. And so imagine how we would pray today. We would never say what David says, oh my God, in you I trust. That's such a manly statement. Oh my God, in you I trust. Now there's a forthright man. And you know, you can really sympathize with the guy who says, you are not my God and in you I don't trust. Both of them are better than the man who says, I'm not worthy to be listened to, and I'm just a, a, I'm a nothing, and and I know how important you are. If I hear one more person say that to me, I'm going to slap you in the face. It's so pathetic. Look, be a man, and approach God as a man approaches God. Be direct with him. If you want something from God, don't do a proactive strike where you have some justifiable place to hide if he chooses not to give you what you want. Do you understand? That's what we're always doing. We're always trying to act like we're not really asking anybody for anything. 
And then if they don't give us, we can say, see, I told you. Be like the importunate widow. She kept knocking, knocking, knocking. Would you go away? Knock, knock, knock. Would you go away? And she just kept asking. And so this is what David does. He says, oh my God, in you I trust. And then he says what? Well, here comes the request. Do not let me be ashamed. Now that's weird, isn't it? You know, if you're going to go to God directly for something, what are you going to ask for? Wisdom, money, long life? But David asks, don't let me be ashamed. Now, why would David say, don't let me be ashamed? Well, he goes on and says, don't let my enemies exalt over me. So what we know is for David, shame would be his enemies exalting over him. Right? Parallel construction. Don't let me be ashamed. Don't let my enemies exalt over me. That's what it is to be ashamed. It's to have your enemies exalt. Now, one thing we learn from this is you should always have your enemies Ever since moving to Bloomington, I've never stopped saying this because we live in such shame of Jesus Christ that we don't have enemies. And so I'm pointing out to you that the godly always have enemies. And what people who don't want to have enemies always say to me, so so you want me to go out and be a jerk just so I have enemies? And I'm, you know, yeah, 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 that's what I want. Yep, yep. Go ahead, be a jerk. If you can't get enemies any other way, well, then I guess you just have to be a jerk, (laughs) you know? Well, that's so stupid. No, David identifies himself absolutely publicly that God is his God. So David doesn't have enemies because David's a jerk, although he could be a jerk. He could be an adulterous, murderous jerk. But David has enemies because David is completely identified with God. And everybody that looks at him knows that David's main man is God. God is his own boy. God is who David is. David is all about God. And so what we know from this is, oh my God, in you I trust, Don't let me be ashamed. Don't let my enemies exalt over me. So how would his enemies exalt over him? His enemies would exalt over him if God failed him. And so, look, if you don't have enemies, all you have to do is publicly identify with God in some way. You will have enemies, and then you will be at their mercy until God takes your cause up. And so... When we read this and we think, okay, David's going to be ashamed if God doesn't defend him, where else does that happen? Well, it happened on the cross. It's one of the, it's one of the most beautiful sections of scripture. And, and you, you'll think I'm twisted when I read it, but I love this section of scripture. Listen to it. Jesus is hanging on the cross, God's beloved son. And the religious leaders say this to, In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him. Did Jesus have enemies? Who were they? They were the religious leaders and the chief priests. And the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And then listen to this. 
He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then it says the robbers who had been crucified him were also insulting him with the same words. (laughs) So you've got the robbers in cahoots with the religious leaders, the elders, the pastors, and they're all mocking Jesus. And they're saying, he identifies with God. Let God rescue him. And this is precisely what's going on with David. David says, my God. And then he says, don't let me put to shame. Don't let my enemies exalt over me. We should always live in, in, in a way that if God fails us, we're ashamed. Okay? You know how you live on the edge? You know how you don't know how you can make it another day. You don't know how you can keep your faith alive. That's good because you're depending on God. What you don't want to be is the man who's not dependent on God and will not be ashamed no matter what happens. LeBron James. We were talking about how many sports stars today uh, are bankrupt soon after they stop earning their millions. And we said to each other, (laughs) ain't never going to happen to LeBron James. That dude has it all together. And all is a big, you know, he will get richer until he dies, right? He's disciplined. He's focused. He plays hard. He's disciplined. He's focused, right? Wouldn't that be a terrible situation to be in? It would be awful. If you've ever worked for rich people, you know how awful it is to be rich. And the reason is the rich just spend their lives making sure that they're never ashamed. That's what they use their money for. They signal their pride with their cars, with their homes, their multiple houses. Just everything about them is an effort to never be insecure, needy, ashamed. I'm not making any statement about LeBron James' spiritual condition. I'm just saying that man has it all together. And Christians, you don't want to have it all together. And I want you to understand that if you get nothing else out of this psalm, get out of it the fact that King David did not have it all together. It would be pathetic for him to write a psalm like this. It would be just nothing but lies if he had it all together. He's desperate. My God, oh my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you. So we go here from a prayer where he is pleading with God to a statement of truth. And you'll see that weaving back and forth in this psalm. So here he states the truth. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Now you see that's a seesaw. You see that shame is a certainty, and the question is who's going to win? There will be shame. Who will have the shame? David says, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. And this is an important lesson to learn. We all think that 
Shame is always bad, but Scripture is filled with shame. That's one of the most important parts of this new book. Uh, Everyone in the world is trying to remove the shame of sexual perversion today. And the only question is which sexual perversion is, is, is the flavor of the day. Okay? And right now we're on, well, we're past homosexuality, we're now on transsexuality. It's going to move to incest, it's going to move to bestiality, it's going to move to all kinds of perversions. We won't know how to speak to one another. It will be impossible for us to, to, to find how to talk to other people because so much of that flows from sexuality. And so shame is everywhere in America today. Are you all with me? And you, if you identify with Jesus in some way in this morass of sexual perversion we live in, you're being shamed all the time, and you're living in such a way that you have to decide whether you're going to allow yourself to be shamed or whether you're going to stay hidden so you're not ashamed. But trust me, the shame will either rest on sexual perversion or it will rest on the people of God. Shame will have the critical mass it has, and it will either be the God was shoving it on Christians for being haters and wanting teenagers to commit suicide, or it will be on those who, uh, what's the word, um, mutilate, who mutilate the sexuality God gave them. Okay, God assigns everybody their sex at conception, and so either, you know, I was telling the first uh, congregation about being at a meeting of, um, uh, I don't know what it was, city council something. And it, 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 there was some perverse thing on the agenda. So you do your duty, you go there, you speak. I'm so tired of that, you know. It's such a worthless endeavor. But anyhow, you go there and speak. And afterwards, there was a man there who was dressed like a woman. So this is a guy that completely transitioned. He'd taken hormones, he had breasts, he had a dress on, all this stuff. But to me, it was obvious he was a man. Because, you know, for one, he had an Adam's apple. And for another, he had shoulders. And for another, his feet were clonkers, you know. And his hands were huge. You know, I mean, he was a man, right? You know, the hormones can get him breasts, but it can't get, it, get rid of his Adam's apple. I suppose he could have, could he have it cut out? I don't know. Okay, so anyhow. And so here, here in this hearing room is unbelievable shame. Right? And everybody knows about the shame because it's a monster. It's, it's neither, it's neither fish nor fowl. It's something in between that makes everybody on edge. It didn't matter if you were conservative, liberal. It didn't matter what your position was on anything. This dude, or dudette, was just like completely, and then you you have to talk to him. And the only way to survive what we're going into as a country is for us to realize that God did make things very, very diverse. He didn't give us one sex, he gave us two, man and woman. And so these two sexes need to be protected. The reason we don't like men acting like women is it steals from women. Do you understand me? 
You know, can you imagine a male robin out there trying to act like a female? Now listen, here's my point. My point is that God's people identify with God, and therefore they identify with his laws, because to love God is to obey his laws. So we identify with God and his character, because his laws are simply his character. And so when it comes to the world attacking the laws of God, we identify with God. Okay? We say, you know, your sex is given you by God, and you should love it and obey it. And today, that is a shameful thing to say in our culture. Do you all see this? You all feel it? Huh? Huh? After the first service, there's a woman that works in our public school system, and she's talking about third and fourth grade, how she's having to change the, the pronouns she uses with her students in third and fourth grade because they're transitioning. And she was talking about how she failed this week because she called a he, a she, or a she, a he, and she'd been... I mean, this is the world we live in. Shame is everywhere. And either you will be ashamed of Jesus and his words, or you will not be ashamed of Jesus and his words. And if you are not ashamed of Jesus and his words, you will be ashamed. Well, no, you will be shamed for Jesus and his words. So I want you to recognize that everybody who is opposed to God today is constantly trying to shame you. Do you feel this? Do you see it? And so you're not unloving by realizing shame's going on all around. And the question is, is it shameful to, to mutilate your body, or is it shameful to be ashamed of Jesus and his words? There aren't, there's no third option. And here David, living for God in his time and in his way, is saying over and over again in this psalm, don't let me be ashamed. He needs God to protect him. Listen, all of us in our work are constantly, constantly making a choice whether to bear the reproach of Jesus Christ. What's another word for reproach? Shame. There's a reason Jesus told us not to be ashamed. And that is because it is a shameful thing to love Jesus. Okay? And so, bear it. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Take your shame from the world. Because there will be shame. God has set up his universe such that there's a critical mass of shame that will always go someplace. All right? What is the, what is the statement you wrote this week? It's like shame is like risk and authority. Shame is like matter, energy, authority, and risk. It never diminishes. It just shifts from one place to another. Okay? Okay? It's the seventh law of thermodynamics. So David is clear on this. He says, verse 3, Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. So David's saying, none of those of us who love the sex God made us will be ashamed. Those who destroy and mutilate the sex God made them, they will be ashamed. 
In other words, you have to transfer this into every time you have an opportunity to confess for Jesus. And today you have an opportunity to confess for Jesus about sex. Trust me. All right. By the way, I got up this morning, read the news. The news tells of the Anglican bishops in the United Kingdom voting on the addition of a new service along with baptism and, and, and you know, and uh, welcoming into membership of the church. They're voting on a new liturgical service to be put in their prayer book, which will be to celebrate the taking on of a new gender of an individual who has transitioned, and now the church is going to welcome them to their new gender. And if it fails this year, it won't fail next year. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him if he delights in God, for he has said, I am the Son of God. These are the religious leaders, and they still hate Jesus in his words. Okay? Don't ever think that religious leaders are, <laughs> how would I say it, uh, trustworthy. All right. You have to do what they say, but don't do as they do. That's what Jesus said. Isn't that a funny thing for him to say? They sit in Moses' seat. You got to do what they say, but don't do what they do. All right. All right. Moving on. Verse 4, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. It's interesting on this verse, Spurgeon, these two verses, Spurgeon stops and addresses professors. And Spurgeon says that everybody should apply to get a scholarship in the college of the ways of God. We should all petition to be accepted into the ways of God. That's what we should want to learn. And then he says professors should stop trying to come up with novel things and should learn the ways of God. Then he says, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. And so if you think about the theme of shame, and you think, I put myself as an act of faith in the place where I will be shamed by the world because I am unashamed of God. Okay? That's where you sit. What do you do after you, after you stand or sit there? What do you do? Well, you sit and wait. Okay? It's not a position of strength. It's not a place that you can step out of. Once you've put yourself there, if you step out of there, it ain't going to go well for you because then they're really going to make fun of you. You know, you start out saying, I'm standing for Jesus and his words, and then all of a sudden you go in the locker room and tell the same smutty jokes or whatever you do today. David says, no, I'm here. Either they're going to have the shame, I'm not going to have the shame. You are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day. Verse 6, remember, O Lord, your compassion. And by the way, one of the applications of this is that you have to be willing to live in the shame. You just have to live there and wait for God. So many of us want to find a way of resolving the tension of the shame of godliness. And so we want to find a job, and so that's why all our young people are going into working with their hands instead of their mouths. 
because it's so much easier. You know, who would want to be a public school teacher today, you know? Who would want to be a physician or who would want to be somebody that actually works with their mind and their mouth? Because it's fraught with dangers and risks and tension and, and you have to be shamed all the time. How are you going to explain to the principal why you're not addressing this young woman or this young man according to their latest fantasy? You know? Listen, we wait for God. And we don't try to circumvent his plans and his schedule for us. We sit under it. Okay? We sit under it. You remember where we get our hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, from? Huh? You remember it? Open up your Bibles to Lamentations 3. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And it's not favorite because of great is thy faithfulness. I knew every morning, you know. What they do is what is typical is we cherry pick the wonderful things of Scripture. But the reason that's such a wonderful text is if you know what comes before it. Jeff, are you with me? Okay, now listen to this. This is Lamentations 3. Right? Am I right? Yes, here, here we are. And I'm just going to pick up, in dark places, verse 6, he has made me dwell. Like those who have long been dead, he has walled me in so that I can't go out. He's made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. Okay? He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I have become, what? A laughing stock to all my people. Their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He's made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. (laughs) Now, is this guy waiting? And then listen, this is where the hymn comes from. Right now, right here. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. And then I, this I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who what? who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he, what? Wait silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent, since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is host hope. And so this is the theme of waiting in Scripture. You don't, you don't try to short-circuit the humiliation and punishment that God sends you. You sit under it. Yeah, it's humiliating being the mother of young children and giving birth. You sit under it. 
Yeah, it's humiliating to see your inadequacy to provide for your family and to lead your family. It's humiliating to not be able to get a wife. There are humiliations everywhere in life. (laughs) Sit under it and trust God. He is my salvation. You know, we hear that word salvation, we think it doesn't pertain to getting a wife. But let me tell you something, there's nothing that's more difficult for any man than getting a wife. You women scare the snot out of us. The one part of my life, including my wife, my mother giving birth to me, that I would rather go through that again than have to get a wife again. I'm serious. I look at people having to get a wife. (laughs) You know, it's so difficult. And then you get married, it's more difficult. He says, for you are my, the God of my salvation. What it is you need to be saved from. That's he, He's the God of your salvation. For you, I wait all the day. Then he says, remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. And so at this point, Spurgeon says that the courts have their precedence, but the godly have their history. And so we can look back from of old and we can see God's faithfulness. He brought the people out of the promised land. He vindicated his son, raising him from the dead. He protected the Christians of the first centuries. He reversed the Roman Empire's complete debauchery and sexual perversion. He brought the pilgrims across the sea. And a lot of them died, but they didn't die. Okay? And you look at your family tree, you look go back and look at the godliness, and God is still rescuing us from all of our for all from all of the things that are dangers that threaten to shame us and to destroy us. And he does it out of his compassion and his loving kindness. And so we we rehearse that history. Then this precious verse, do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. What a wonderful statement. And how precious it is to so many of us. When we look back on the hot-blooded years of our lives and we think of the wicked, wicked things we've done. And then we say, don't remember the sins of my youth. You know, there are two kinds of people. One is the people who refuse to remember the sins of their youth. They put them out of their brain. The other are the people who remember them and plead with God to forget them. Memory is kind of either going to be done by God or by you. And if you remember the sins of your youth, then God will forget them. But if you refuse to remember the sins of your youth, God has perfect track of them. And you will face them when you stand before him. Do you see? David takes them to God, and God will forget them. And that's what we do with our sin. We take our sins to God. We don't act like we don't see them. 
If, you, if I were to read to you Spurgeon on this, it's, it's almost uh, more than you can bear because he's very descriptive. But I'm going to be a little bit easier on you, and, and I'm going to put it the way I want to put it, which is it is the torment of the old. It's the torment of the old to remember the sins of our youth. And it is the torment of the youth, the young, not to have known the torment of the old and remembering the sins of their youth. Do you get it? Hot-blooded years, you don't realize you're going to live with the sins of your youth the rest of your life, and they will torment you. You think about David at this point in his life. He's obviously old. And at this point in his life, what does he have behind him? Obviously, as behind him, adultery and murder with Bathsheba, among other things. And he's still praying that God will not remember the sins of his youth. David is praying this prayer because he's overwhelmed with his sins. David knows perfectly well that his sins absolutely justify God in never, ever hearing his requests. David doesn't go flouncing into the presence of God saying, help me, help me, help me. David goes into the presence of God saying, forgive me. I have nobody but you. I have nothing to bring. Help me. Remember not the sins of my youth. Remember not my transgressions. And those people, God forgets their sins. <laughs> and I have to tell myself that every morning when I climb into the shower, I don't know why the shower is my worst place. When I remember my sins, I, I let out a noise. Okay? I don't know what it's like with you. <laughs> And I'm in there, and I will remember sins. And this is what I'll do. I'll go, oh, you know, just, oh, no. What do you do? You go to God. Don't, don't remember the sins of my youth. Don't remember my sins right now. Don't remember my sins. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Notice again his weaving. He's just pleaded with God. And then he says, this is who God is. So you've got the objective and the subjective. You know, he's pleading with God. And then he says this, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way he leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. Don't be proud with God. Do not ever go to a church that is proud, which means don't ever go to a church that is rich. If a church has beautiful architecture and they brag about their organ, and the people that lead you are proud of their musical ability, how is that going to help you? Oh, Lord, look at the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jesus says, blow this place to smithereens and I'll rebuild it in three days. What is he saying? Jesus is saying, I am the temple of the Lord. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Don't go to a church that is proud because it will lead you to be proud of being there. <laughs> okay? If you ever sit, feel smug about being at the church you're in, leave it. <laughs> because how can you be humble before God and be proud at the church you're in? Right? God hears the prayers of the humble. Ron Sider used to say that there's a preferential option for the poor. And all the theonomists had fits. No, laissez-faire capitalism, laissez-faire. No, no, God has a preferential option for the poor. And in fact, the theonomists are wrong, and Ron Sider is right. Except he's wrong in what he means by the poor. Because it's the poor in spirit. And being poor in spirit and being poor financially are not necessarily the same. So no, you can't stop and help anybody that asks you for money and feel like you're doing what God wants you to do. What you need to do is help those who are poor in spirit with your money. So for instance, one man in this church who is very humble and very sweet is trying hard to work to provide for his family this week and sent me a text this morning saying, could you look out for any odd jobs that I can do when I'm not working my full-time job? Well, now there's a man to help. He's humble. He serves this church constantly. He's a young father, and he wants to work beyond his full-time job to provide for his family. Now, isn't that good? God hears the prayers of that man. Why? Well, it says right here. It says, he instructs sinners in the way, he leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. And so if you want to help this man, you have some odd jobs that you <laughs> talk to me afterwards and I'll tell you the man's name. He keeps saying the truth. He says, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Do you see this loving kindness and truth, loving kindness and truth? The world will tell you that you can't be kind and truthful. The world will tell you that you're being a bully if you address somebody by their proper sex rather than the sex they want you to address them. But remember that loving kindness and truth in God embrace. Truth is not in opposition to love and kindness. Love and kindness never oppose truth. You have to hold them together. Okay? I never stop saying this, right? The character traits of God, which we call the perfections and attributes, are not in competition with each other. The God of the Old Testament is not fighting against the God of the New Testament. Loving kindness and truth are right like this. They're best buds, okay? Who is the man who fears the Lord? This is what there isn't in the church anymore. The church today is a worldwide scheme to eviscerate the fear of God from families and churches. Every pastor considers it's his job to make sure his people never fear God. Okay? But it says here, who is the man who fears the Lord? And then it says, he will instruct him in the way he should choose. If you want to have God instruct you in the path you should take, fear him. Until you fear him, he will not instruct you. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. 
The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. And so what we know is that God hides things from the proud and from those who don't fear him. The secrets of God do not belong to the proud and to those who are presumptuous about God. Okay? This is, this is a new... This is a new day. If you were smart, you would have a trap door right now. And the deacons would have the privilege of opening it up and I would be gone. Now I have to figure out how to stop it. Okay, all right. Stop. I have two buttons, start and cancel. Do I really want to say start? (laughs) Thank you, Doug. Where was I? I was concluding. Was invited to come to... I've told you the story before, but many of you haven't heard it. So all the muckety-muck economists in the country were invited to come celebrate a man's birthday. And as he and his wife had this idea, they'd celebrate his birthday by, by, by each of them writing a paper and bringing it and reading it to each other and then arguing about it. <laughs> Sounds a lot better than McDonald's to me. <laughs> so guess what wrote on? On the character of God in hiding himself that God does not owe us revelation of himself. And that's what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that God will reveal himself and his ways to those who are humble, to those who are poor in spirit. He has a preferential option to the humble of heart and to those who fear him. They will be the ones that will have the secrets disclosed to them. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Notice it's not an option for God's people to not get their feet caught in the net. We're going to get our feet caught in the net all the time because we're stupid sheep. And the various nets we get caught in will vary from person to person, but God will pluck our feet out. We'll get ourselves in messes. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, read it, because it's just a succession of messes that Christian gets himself into, and God plucks him out. And it's such an encouraging book. So he says, My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. <laughs> Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed. Do you notice that theme of shame? Okay? Don't let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I, what? I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. What's the significance of that final verse? The final verse is David turning away from himself to the church of Jesus Christ, to the people of God. Rescue all those. David loves the church. And David has a magnanimous spirit. He doesn't stop with himself. He's not self, 
what's the word, self-absorbed, okay? But at the end, he says, do this for all God's people, okay? Let's pray.